0: Everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge.
1: When people are looking at polling, there's a really big difference in what we might call likely voter polling, surveys of all registered voters, and surveys of the general public at large. Oregon is a blue state, less so for the governor than any other statewide office. And I'd say that this particular moment is less blue than it has been in the last decade. And who is left as a Democrat and who's left as a Republican just is becoming less and less reflective of the electorate at large. And that worries me. And there's no reason we have to do it this way, but we continue to decide to do it this way.
0: Today, our guest on the podcast is John Horvick. Political insiders in this state will know who John Horvick is. He's one of the top pollsters in Oregon, and he probably has the best Oregon Politics Twitter account, I would say. But John's been working in and around polling in Oregon Politics for over a decade. He works at DHM Research. We talk a little bit about his personal background and DHM, what they do, what they don't do. He graduated from the University of Minnesota. He's from the Midwest. We talk a little bit about that. He's been president of the Portland City Club and is kind of a civic leader. He talks a little bit about his one main civic project where he enters into the political fray with Oregon primaries in the podcast. Some of the clients from DHM that you will know of or have heard of, A R P, City of Portland, City of Salem, City of Tigard, Deschutes River Conservancy, OPB, which we talk about the, the big polling from OPB. The Oregon School Boards Association, OHA, the Oregon Health Authority, and several others, news organizations, governmental organizations, et cetera. They don't do candidate work, so they're, they don't you know, work for Republicans or Democrats. They just kind of work for nonpartisan institutions. Alex, we cover a lot of ground in the episode. Anything you want to highlight?
2: Yeah, I thought the most interesting part in particular was when he talked about and this, is, I think, closer to the end of the sorts of issues that Republicans should be focusing on. The approval rating of just how things are in Oregon right now is abysmal. I think he said it was lower than the lowest it's been since they started this poll, which I believe is in 2010. If I'm correct in that, the approval rating of how things are going in Portland is 9%. I don't think any of the issues will surprise people when they hear those about, you know, what voters care about, what they're looking for in the upcoming governor's race with different candidates. But, yeah, I think that should be a pretty clear path for the GOP to start adopting some of that messaging and running with it. We also talked a little bit about what Betsy Johnson means in the race, and I thought that that was a pretty interesting section, too, and kind of his take on that, which I believe if I'm not mistaken, he basically says, yeah, it's probably pretty unlikely, but the avenues of kind of the voters that she's going for could make up for some sort of weird coalition at the end of the day. So that'll be interesting for everybody to see, of course, what happens there. But yeah, he's, he brings some really good insight into this stuff.
0: Totally. The, the way, so the way to think about this episode is we have the first section, we talk about his background, then we have the first section where he kind of explains polling as an industry and a, and a practice and how to think about it. What, what What's a good poll? What's a bad poll? For people who are not experts like us. And then the second section is really about Oregon and what the latest polling says about the political climate, governor's election, what Democrats should do, what Republicans should do. So I think a lot of people are really gonna enjoy this episode. John is incredibly knowledgeable and is sort of encyclopedic with his ability to recall polling results from different polls that he's done. So it's an awesome conversation and I hope everyone enjoys it. Titus, make a plug for uh, subscribing and
2: supporting before we jump in. Well, definitely go and check us out on YouTube. We will have a custom YouTube page at some point because we're almost at 100 subscribers. I believe we're at about 90 right now. So we need 10 of you to go today and subscribe to us on YouTube. We'll put the YouTube link in the video. You can also just type in Oregon Bridge Podcast and you'll find us that way. And then please make sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform that you use so we can keep boosting the pod. But thanks again for listening. And we have some really special episodes coming up. So we're excited to release those as well for y'all to have soon. All right, that's it, everyone. Enjoy the episode with John Horvick.
0: John Horvick, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. just came from a focus group and good day for public opinion research and to talk about it.
0: <laughs> so speaking of, you know, I was, I was looking through your background and I guess my main question was, did you always want to be a top public opinion pollster, or is this something you stumbled into later in life? I think you've been at D H M for like what ten years now, or something like that.
1: Yeah, going on, it's closer to fifteen at this point. So I don't think, certainly, that when I was a kid, like this wasn't something I thought about. I was going to be a second baseman for the for the Minnesota Twins. I, I hope. <laughs> and then when I was in, I, you know, went to college, I was a, a sociology student and was, you know, stats and all that sort of stuff, and so. Social science research was what I wanted to do kind of Mm. back in the day. I certainly wouldn't have understood that this was a career option. I wouldn't have been able to define like what I wanted to do is this. I I think I probably wanted to be an academic and I actually did go to grad school to get a, I was going to track to get a PhD in sociology Oh wow! and I didn't even make it to finish my master's degree. I, uh, (laughs) I was a failed graduate student. Got my undergraduate in sociology at the University of Minnesota after spending most of my time at Nebraska and then went back to Nebraska to enter grad school. And I worked in something called the Bureau of Sociological Research, which essentially is a little kind of public opinion shop for academics at the school and some public agencies. And so we were doing survey research, not exactly what I do today, but we were helping design questionnaires and help field surveys, doing a little bit of qualitative focus group research for some projects. And so I got to touch that there. Going for me, and everybody's different, there's certainly a lot of smart people who go from undergrad to grad school and have smart questions and like understand what they should be doing in the world. That wasn't me at all. I was a total at a total loss in graduate school. I had no idea what was important or what questions to ask or what it would be mean, you know, to get an answer. I had just no conception of that. And so I I ended up leaving grad school and I had some intention of finishing it once I came out to Portland. Uh, but that that didn't that now, didn't how, stick.
0: How did you make the transition from Midwest to West Coast?
1: Well, it was at a point in my life where I wanted to just do something different. I was, you know, as I said, kind of grad school wasn't working for me and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And I was free. I could do, you know, whatever I wanted to do. And so I looked for a place to be first. One of the things I did enjoy about my academic studies in school was I was very interested in social capital and Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone and all that sort of stuff, if you're familiar with it. And great book. One of the things he talked about was, you know, communities, places that had higher levels of social capital. Now, Portland stuck out as a place that did. And, and that was something that was attractive to me about coming to Portland. I was sort of thinking I could go East Coast, West Coast, North South, but all sorts of things sort of led me towards Portland.
0: Huh. And
1: I came out here sight unseen. I'd never been here before, didn't have connections, didn't have a job lined up, but it had lots of attributes that I was looking for in a place to be. Relatively affordable, it's 2003, so relatively affordable at the time. I had good public transit, which was important to me as someone without much money, a place where it had a reputation to be civically engaged, and uh, just it wasn't the Midwest, and I I have no ill feelings towards the Midwest (laughs) at all. You know, I have very strong sort of in my heart for both Minnesota and Nebraska, where I'm from, but I was just looking for something different, and it's something different, so.
0: Real quick before, Alex, you jump in, so... Are you at the place in your life where Oregon is home, you're an Oregonian, this is it? Or have you been tempted over the last few years to venture back to the Midwest or somewhere else?
1: No, this is this is definitely the place for me. I love it here. I really do. And yeah, I've been so fortunate to end up in the job that I have for lots of reasons we can discuss. But one of the great things about it is I really get to understand or hope to try to understand a place it's people, it's geography, it's bounty. And, you know, I really do love it here. And not only do I like to be able to talk to people here, but God, Oregon is big and beautiful. Whether you go to the Southern Coast or the Wallalas or I'd love Steen's, I love Steen's mountains heading down there. You know, it's just, it's great. It's great. We're just really, really fortunate to be here. Now we got some problems and people are upset about how things are going, but no, we'll get to picture. that too. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. <laughs> big picture. Gosh, I just couldn't really imagine a better place to be than here.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that shortly. But so first, so tell us about DHM, for, which from from my understanding has been around for either 40 years or over 40 years at this yeah. point. What does DHM do? What's the type of work that you do? And who are the sorts of clients that you work with?
1: Sure, so it's a public opinion research shop and it has been around for 40 plus years. It was founded by Adam Davis and Tim Hibbets, the, the the D and the H. And then another partner came around Sue Mitch Hall, now Sue Embry, but that's, that's the M of THM. They sold the company about a year ago now, but I started uh, with THM sort of doing some work about 13, 14 years ago. And it's an independent, non-partisan public opinion shop. I, you know, this is my spiel that I give, especially when I do focus groups like I did this morning. I like to say, you know, it's our job to ask people what sort of communities they want to live in. And, you know, I think that's a good line, but actually, like, I feel it in my my heart too. That's that's what a good public opinion researcher does. But I say nonpartisan, meaning it's not that our clients don't have positions and they could be conservative or liberal positions. It's just we don't potentially seek out just one side or the other. And I don't mean that as a, a negative towards shops that do. There's really excellent Republican pollsters out there, Democratic pollsters. This just isn't the space that we fill. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is, is that to answer your question about clients, we do a lot of public sector work in, you know, cities, counties, states. And we've just always felt that in order for us to have the credibility with public sector decision makers and their constituents that it is better for us not to be predominantly or exclusively working with one side or the other whether that be democrats or republicans or liberal conservative advocacy groups now we have lots of clients like who are tend to be more conservative or will tend to be tend to be more liberal but we just don't exclusively you know choose work on that we do Work not to have conflicts of interest with their clients, but just not on a sort of ideological perspectives, but on, on issue things. And so a lot of our work is public sector, and then a lot of our work would be um, advocacy organizations or business or associations. It's all public policy focused, though. So, you know, we wouldn't work on products or services, but, you know, if you are a company that sells products or services and have an issue in the legislature or concerned about an election outcome, those are the sorts of things we'd work on. And then the other thing about DHM is that we never ever work for parties or for candidates. And so that's a world that I don't know that well. Like I, I know what the people think about parties and candidates, but like, you know, inside campaign polling, that's just not the space that we found.
2: Gotcha. And so, so I'm just curious, cause I'm looking on your website right now. Mm-hmm. It looks like two of your current clients or maybe past clients, one of them is TriMet and one of mm-hmm. them is the Oregon Health Authority. Mm-hmm. And you just talked about having a lot of public sector clients. I'm curious of like what what are they sort of engaged with with you as a firm? Like is Trimet sure. looking to roll out a new service or something and say, oh, this is going to be popular, or we want kind of a public opinion of our overall what the public thinks of us? with what, what's kind of the different details and maybe some of the projects there? Sure,
1: we we do a lot of transportation work, in particular, we've done a lot of work with Trimet over the years. Trimet, we do frequent so sort of rider you know surveys, so just. Right general public, just sort of added it's called the attitudes and awareness survey, but just what do people think about the agency? What are what are their experiences? What are their preference for services? How frequently they're using it, what might encourage them to use it more, or what sort of reasons are they they're not using it? I mean, it's a large agency trying, you know, spending lots of public dollars, asking people from time to time how they're doing, uh, would be what we would help them with. Then there's been times when they've, you know, thought about big public policy questions, like should there be uh, armed police that are are uh, on max streams, for example, and that's a public policy question that, you know, they managing lots of different constituencies and policy questions, but just understanding what do riders want or what do drivers feel about, you know, those sorts of questions. That would be so some examples with TriMet. For OHA, we've engaged with them on all sorts of issues over the years, uh, just through the pandemic, just, you know, understanding how people are managing COVID in their homes, or they might be developing a campaign to communicate where to get vaccinations. For example, we recently worked on a project where one of the goals is to get folks uh, 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 more frequently tested for HIV AIDS, particularly in rural communities. And so we did a number of focus groups with folks in rural communities, particularly those in the LGBT community, to talk about, you know, what their you know, concerns are, questions are, et cetera, about HIV, AIDS testing and PrEP. So it's one of the the things that I think that the public may have a misunderstanding of a shop like us is that we do less politics probably than they might think. What people tend to see, and I like to talk about, and it's fun and exciting, like to talk about like the horse race or you know, how people are feeling about a hot issue that the legislature is dealing with. That's the stuff that ends up in the paper, but I'd say most of our work is more long-term policy
2: oriented and not short-term politics. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way, way to describe it for sure. But now moving on to the relatively short term politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next question is so, and it's funny because, yeah, I saw that I guess you just made me realize that Adam, who is definitely a friend to the pod and both to Ben and I at the Oregon Values and Beliefs mm-hmm. Center, we had had Armory on the podcast mm-hmm. before, who, you know, is their deputy executive yeah. director. And she talked a little bit about polling. I think people tend to maybe not dislike pollsters like you, but dislike kind of polling in general, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to politics. And I think at least, and maybe this is historical and people just sort of blow this out of context every time, but specifically with the 2016 and 2020 election, when it came to a bunch of different national races, the, the polling seemed to be pretty bad, right? And one example that I'll give was funny. There was a poll that I believe showed Donald Trump down by like 18 or 19 points in the state of Florida. And mm-hmm. Guy Cecil, who is the head of the top Democratic super PAC, basically just tweeted, like, this is BS. <laughs> like, this is this is just totally wrong. And of course, Trump ended up being down in that poll by 18 or 19 points to win Florida by four or five points, which is basically considered a landslide in kind of a statewide election. I'm kind of curious, just from your perspective, broadly, of like, what went wrong Kind of with those different polls and then also did that cause you to update any of your firm's methodology or kind of how you take different yeah. samples different results different groups and things like that
1: yeah it's a really big question it's a really important question and i'll i'll try to walk through some of the different ways that i think about it and i think that a, a like a, a consumer of public opinion research might want to think about it as well first i've polled on pollsters and you know we're we're rank about where used car salesmen are. <laughs> Above uh, so,
2: Congress, <laughs> <but> uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: So I so I I understand sort of where we where we stand. And there's lots of things wrapped into, into that, including use for the accuracy of polls. Um so I have I'll I'll admit I have a bit of a defensive sort of reaction to 2016 and even 2020 uh sort of polling because on the one hand it was some of the like on average some of the worst that we had seen in the last several decades, and let's let's as an industry let's let's acknowledge that like there is something that was didn't meet the standards that we would set for ourselves, right? So so I don't want to I don't want to not acknowledge that. On the other hand, sometimes I hear when people complain about polling is is that we should do away with it. Now sometimes it's said directly, or sometimes that's sort of I think implied by by what they say, and I just sort of wonder, and, and then replace it with with what and and like talking heads with feelings, yeah. Like, right? what is worse the, than
0: pollsters the, is CNN commentators, probably. Right.
1: <laughs> like, so like, so there's there's that part of me, and the other the other part of me in 2020, there is definitely individual polls that were way off. I'd say collectively, to so the average polling error and the and the the national uh, election, I forget what it was. Now let's say it's three percent, four percent, whatever it was, so in that range. If you would tell me that we can estimate what Americans are going to do within four percentage points on a Tuesday in November during a pandemic when we've changed all the laws about how we're going to get people to cast a ballot, not bad. Like, I like part of me is like, come on, man, like that, <laughs> that ain't that ain't so bad. One of the one of the there are definitely some. You know, if you look at the state races, uh, you know some states did really well and some states didn't. And one of the sort of the head scratchers for me, and still is a lot of the explanations about what went wrong in say 2020, uh, some re- response bias, uh, the types of people who would take the survey versus the type of people that wouldn't take mm. it, or education sorts of issues. That was kind of the 2016 explanation is that we didn't, pollsters didn't count for education. And there's probably some truth to that. But what I always just look at is like, okay, Minnesota the Poland was, was pretty good. In Wisconsin, the Poland was pretty bad. Now, I grew up in Minnesota and there are definitely differences between Minnesota and Wisconsin, but it ain't that different. Like, <laughs> so what what's the explanation that you got for Minnesota being good and Wisconsin being bad? And and I can say things, but and like the industry has wrestled with some of these things, um, but I, I think it's pretty difficult to pinpoint a specific explanation. So there's that. And then just like methodologically, um we we deploy lots of different quantitative methods. Um well lots, that's maybe an exaggeration, but we do we do certainly do live and telephone calling still, but almost all of it now we mix in um text messaging as well. Hmm. Where not that people take the survey via text message, but they are invited to take the survey uh via text message and they can take it on their smartphone. Uh, or they could kick it to another device we're doing more and more online uh surveys as well there's differences in how you reach people um but you have to reach people with different modes uh nowadays just some some groups of people are just going to be more or less likely to participate th- the way you reach them and you gotta you gotta work to try to account for that um the other thing is and I, this is me rambling a little bit but th- when people are looking at polling, um, there's a really big difference in what we might call likely voter polling, particularly as we get close to an election, surveys of all registered voters, and surveys of the general public at large. And it's that first one, what a likely voter is, is, it's not guesswork but there's lots of assumptions that are built into it Mm -hmm. that we don't know for sure whether we're right or wrong until election day. And we all have our sort of secret sauces and our sort of preferences about how we do it, Um, but there's no one right or wrong answer, which is very different. When you're doing an all adult survey, for example, you know how many 18, 29 year olds are, you know how many women there are, you know how many people with college degrees are, and that's easy to get right. But how many people are gonna show up on an election day is much more challenging.
0: So uh, uh, one more follow-up on the, the polling industry, and then we'll move to Oregon. For regular consumers, um, like Alex and I, of this kind of information, what would you recommend to folks like us to try to determine whether or not a poll is good or bad, or, you know, whether a poll will tend to be accurate? I mean, is there a certain methodology or a sample size minimum, or, you know, what kind of factors should we be considering when we're trying to figure out if a poll is reliable or not? Um,
1: The things that I would look for, there's a lot of confusion about sample size, which we're not gonna do a stats class right here, but like (laughs) I I could say a million times, like how a a representative sample can be reflective of the larger population and it's just not gonna stick. But so I encourage people, you know, take some stats class, you know, do some work, But, but sample size matters, but not in the way that often people think. The confusion people have about sample size is that your accuracy of your poll and how big of a sample is and then how big your universe is a 400 sample survey is just as accurate in Portland as it is in Oregon as it is in the country and that's just the math works that way and it's it's hard for people to get their head around. Um, you know really what I'd look for is how transparent the survey mm. is. like what's being reported? Do you get to see the questionnaire? Do you get to see mm. the demographics? Um it's those things that I would I would be looking for uh, as much as who the firm is or what the methodology is, who do they talk to and what do they ask them? And if you can't see that, then yeah, you should naturally be skeptical.
0: Mm, That's helpful. Um, Okay. So shifting to Oregon. uh, Mm -hmm. We talk a lot on this show about how Oregon hasn't elected a Republican governor in decades. You know, the legislature for the last decade has been controlled solidly by Democrats. Um, And so that leads to a perception sometimes of Oregon being considered a deep blue state Mm -hmm. um, and that Republicans don't have a chance here. Before we get into the unique dynamics of the upcoming gubernatorial race, um, do you think of Oregon as a deep blue state? um, Or do you think that based on the data and information that you're seeing regularly, it's a more complex picture than that? Um, Particularly, you know, we look a lot at like NAVs and the rise of NAVs. Mm Um, does that impact whether or not Oregon's a, quote, blue state? I guess I'm just curious, how do you view Oregon's politics? Well, yeah, we're a blue state,
1: or we, at least we have been in, in the last 20, 40 years. I mean, just look at the presidential races and how sort of the margins have been there. You look at it, Democrats have won all but two statewide races since 2002. They have super majorities in the legislature. It'd be hard to define anything else, anything Oregon other than a, a, a blue state. Um, so I'd I'd start there. There are there are nuances though that um, are important to be paying attention to. Particularly, I'd say at the governor's race. If we look mm-hmm. at if we look at uh, statewide elections over the last couple of decades, you know, the average since Opera had the blowout in what 1998, right? I think he won 35 out of 36 counties in 1998. But you look at elections 2002 to. to to 2018, or Democrats have only won those governor's races by an average of five percentage points. They haven't got over 51 percentage points. They've been held under 50% two or three times in those races. So it's not like they've been running away. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, Alex says a five percent margin is a landslide. I, we all have our own definitions of a landslide, but like it's not by 10 points. It's not by 15 points. It's just the margins have been pretty narrow. I so we're probably going to be getting to to, to 2022 and. Just maybe the previous sort of my ways of thinking about it. Yeah. I reflect back on 2010. So like if I'm looking for comparable sort of dynamics, like how does how does 2022 compare it to something that we can uh, look to the past on? And I'd say 2010. In 2010, the right direction number for the state was around 30 percent, give or take. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's about what it is. You know, right now it's about 24 ish percent or lower. Wow. Um, in in you know we had. Poor economic uh conditions in 2010. People were feeling really anxious about the economy. Uh and in 2010, uh it was uh, by the way, we had a, a a trifecta uh at the at the federal level with the Democratic president, democratic legislature. Chris Dudley won, or excuse me, lost by 1.4 percentage points.
0: And he was winning was, on election night, I remember. He was, until-
1: he was winning on election night. Uh, and then he, the the house was split 30-30. And so I like, asked myself, well, is this environment more conducive or less conducive to Republicans uh, this year? it's it's hard for me to say it's it's less. I mean, this looks like a pretty good year for, for Republicans. Now there's differences we're gonna have a third party candidate. Um, and so it's not analogous in that sense. And I'd say one other difference is in 2010, the Tea Party was an organized group with a with a kind of some clarity around what they're upset about and what they wanted. That's less clear to me today uh, than it was in 2010. But yeah, but I say Oregon is a, is a blue state, less so for the governor than any other statewide office. Uh, and I'd say that this particular mm. moment is less blue than it has been in the last decade. Mm.
2: No, that's that's really interesting, and I want to get into that in just a second here. But one question I did want to ask is uh, how should we think about non-affiliated voters? And part of the reason I ask this is because uh, it seems like there's a media piece or a think tank piece all the time that says, you know, Americans are becoming uh, so disillusioned with political parties that they're leaving them in mass and the number of independent or non-affiliated voters is dramatically increasing. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least from my understanding of, of polling, which is somewhat, I mean, I have worked for political groups before I was involved with some polls, is that uh, just because someone is an independent or non-affiliated, uh, most of those people are not actually independent in the mm-hmm. sense of that, you know, they come down to election day and they're really thinking, am I going to vote for the Republican? I'm going to vote for the Democrat, Libertarian or whatever. Uh, many of them have just kind of chosen to be out of the party process in general, but their voting habits are still pretty consistent. Just kind of curious from you, one, is that is that generally right? Obviously that was a pretty broad stroke, but just kind of, is that generally correct? And then two, just how should we think about the number of people, you know, because the NAV seem to be increasing from my understanding as well, especially within Oregon.
1: Yeah, so try to provide a few different ways, at least I think about it. One is what we've seen is people's perceptions of Dem- the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have been declining, right? So it's just more and more negative about the parties. And with that, you um, if you're summarizing in people defining defining themselves as independent or non-affiliated but if you push people to your point alex if you push people well do you tend to lean one way uh democratic republican the change hasn't been that that great you can see some different polling i think in the last 2 or 3 years we see seen pe- more sort of negativity towards the democratic party uh well really the last or 18 months or so and some of that is national party dynamics but but um I think what, it's not that people are becoming more independent; it's that they're feeling more negative towards the major parties, and so they don't want to be affiliated with them. Um, now, with that, if you become more negative about the parties, you tend to become more negative about both parties. And if you become, a, if you're sort of a left-leaning person, but you don't want to, you're not really a, don't feel like a Democrat, but you really, really dislike the Republican Party. Like, like you still only you still only got one place to go. And 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 the reverse is true as well. And so you can have a rise of not their independence because they feel more negative about the parties. But if you really dislike the parties, like you're not going to vote for the guy that you really really dislike. If that if hopefully that makes sense. So that's that's one piece. Now that's nationally a sort of like big picture. In Oregon, the story is is a little bit more mechanical. You know, we register by party in the state. That's not true. In, in a lot of states. We have closed partisan primaries here. You, you choose a party if you want to vote in the Democratic-Republican primary. With ne- non affiliated were rising at a pretty fast clip before we instituted automatic voter registration. Right. But automatic voter registration was fuel to that fire. And now we see, you, you, if, you, if you watch on YouTube, you can see it, but like a, you know, the hockey sticks sort of curve up with non-affiliated voters. Because what we do is if you show up at the DMV for the first time and you get registered, you automatically register as an affiliated voter. Now you can then choose to become a member of a party, but about eighty-five percent of voters aren't doing that. And are, the, those I, folks, def- are those folks voting? Well, to some degree. So if you look at if you look at turnout uh, among eligible voters, turnout among eligible voters has been increasing since motor voter, right? So that there is there is some some margin of those some some segment of those voters are in fact getting those ballots and turning them in and probably wouldn't have otherwise so some you know a lot of them aren't um i think regardless if they vote or not getting people the ballots a good thing that's yeah. that, that that's my my take other people will have a different take but um but that's what we're doing so we are we are we've set up a system that is going to by default the the automatic sort of reg, voter registration is not affiliated most people don't care that much about politics or, you know, right. think about it just as they maybe get their ballots and they just aren't plugged in. And so you know, non-affiliated voters as say, you know, are the largest group of voters you know, in Oregon. So over a million voters are now non-affiliated. Wow. Um, and because, because, because of our motor voter and automatically defaulting people into non affiliated what can we say about them? Less and less. Uh, because it's just, People are just falling into that category, not because they There's no commonalities. Well, there's no commonality. Yeah. You know, if, you, if, if you do a poll, if you do a poll and you say, you know, you do agree or you support something or oppose something, agree or disagree, and if Democrats are on one side and Republicans on the other, non-affili- non-affiliated as a group will almost always fall in between. But that's because on average, like they're in between of where the partisans are, not because of any individual non-affiliated voters, particularly moderate. But we tend to see with non-affiliated is that they, tend, they, they pay less attention to politics. Their positions on issues are uh, less ideological and they're less committed to them. It doesn't, that I do think that most tend to vote Democrats and most tend to vote Republicans, you know, but there's enough of them out there that either getting them to show up or getting them to change their perspective on something is that, you know, it definitely can have an impact on, on an outcome. Hmm
2: interesting yeah so may, maybe it's a little bit more optimistic than or at least in terms of swinging voters that i had had put it before
1: i you know i i think i i think that they're more gettable um the one other thing i'd say about non-affiliated voters is that they're young um and part part of that is because of i think how young people are feeling about partisan politics and part of it is just they're the most likely group of people to you know be engaged with the DMV for the first time and beginning getting registered. you know, that and this has been my my issue now for I I don't take very many strong positions, at least publicly, but I do on this particular issue. Um only 25% of voters are registered Republicans and they're old. Only about 35% <laughs> of Oregonians are registered as Democrats and they're old and they're <laughs> they're they're white, they're homeowners, they're they tend to be more educated. They're just not like the rest of the electorate.
0: Yeah.
1: And and in Oregon, our close partisan primaries mean everything i mean uh, ben how many candidates how many challengers do you have in your primary none <laughs> none <laughs> and you're one of those districts and so it's like the primary is what's determinative in so many of these races and and who is left as a democrat and who's left as a republican just is becoming less and less reflective of the electorate at large and that worries me and there's no reason we have to do it this way but we continue to decide to do it this way
0: if folks are interested in that idea you should listen to the podcast with katherine gale um, I don't know, John, if you followed uh, her proposal. What's happened mm-hmm. in Alaska yeah. with the final five? That seems to me to be a better solution than just simply opening the primaries. Um, because she she walks through the mechanics mm-hmm. and why why she thinks that shifts behaviors of politicians. Um, does it does that resonate with you? Her proposal it,
1: it does. I'm open to different solutions. I worked on the top two primary in 2014. We got slaughtered destroyed <laughs> right? so like i like that's probably not the solution for oregon um i'm open to other solutions i just what we're doing now is unfair it's it's not sustainable and it it should change hmm.
2: so circling back to something you said earlier and uh, i actually just checked one of your tweets you were almost right you said 30 percent in 2010 disapproval which it was 31 uh <laughs> you, you clearly got the numbers top of mind and I was reading. I think this is either your tweets or maybe you recorded an article or something. But basically, the the sort of concerns of voters from and I mean this is just in general, but of course it's backed by research. The the concerns of issues from voters coming up in twenty twenty two are obviously different than what they were in twenty eighteen. Uh, and of course, the dissatisfaction is significantly lower in twenty twenty two than at least well, you know, twenty twenty two than it was in twenty eighteen what are some of those issues at least that you have seen that are like, like what what basically do you think is the reason for the change? Do you think it's just COVID, like sort of school lockdowns and things like that, people no. being upset in general, is it homelessness? What are what are kind of the issues that are popping out for you?
1: Right, so COVID certainly has got to play a role in terms of how like sort of the gut feelings, sort of the anxiety, the angst that people are feeling just about the world, like that's gotta be true. And it upset all sorts of things. And that's that's part of the picture. But when he asks people directly, what are the most important problems you want to be dealt with? Like it is so flashing red light clear what it is. It is homelessness, it is frustrations in political leadership, which we sort of talk about what that all means, and it's crime. Like those are the things. And that's the other thing, like to my democratic friends who are out there who who are sort of making some assumptions about where we're headed because of where we've been, the issue set is different in 2022. Like in 2018, in twenty eighteen, you know, it's education and it's healthcare and it's like taxes. And, and, you know, in 2016, the last two governor races, it's, you know, education and it's taxes. And I don't know, you know, some other sort of like general sort of typical jobs in the economy, probably. Something like that. Like those are issues that Democrats are good or neutral on. Like homelessness, crime and frustrations with political leadership and political leadership in Oregon means Democrats. Like the issue set is, is just it's different now on political leadership I do think you probably could put a a, a, a finger on on COVID there's if Oregonians have been funny about COVID like if you ask people like do you support the policy that Kate Brown has put forward vaccine mandates for example or masking in schools you know majorities of Oregonians have been behind those things all the way mm-hmm. um but the, the sort of the reservation of like deep opposition has always been stronger than than the reservoir of support for those you know, people organize around opposition more than they organize around support um uh yeah I,
0: I just Oh, go ahead yeah real quick follow-up on that um yeah. kate brown as an individual has incredibly low in in most recent poll like oh. bottom of the barrel approval oh, yeah. Yeah. but the policies as you mentioned that she's proposed at least for the pandemic are relatively broadly supported. What's, yep. the, what's the disconnect there? Do you have any theories?
1: I have some theories, but they're, they're, they're hard for me to prove, but I'll, I'll give you my theories. I, this is kind of my own way of thinking about it. So I'm not sure if, if, if somebody else would kind mm. of get to the same conclusion, use different words, but I think early in the days, we, early in the pandemic, there was a rush to say follow the science or not politicize things, and and that's fine as far as it goes. I, I, I I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not in charge of the decisions. I sort of get that sentiment, um, and I also get the sort of notion that people don't like politics. But I, you know, my thinking now, looking back, is that we needed and this is, this is the word that I, I, I'm not sure is right that other people would use, but we needed more politics in mm-hmm. in COVID response. Not in that it should have been partisan to try to get a partisan advantage, but people should have felt more like they were heard if they had different opinions, they, that they had an opportunity to, to engage about uh, uh, how to manage these different values and different needs. And I, I think a lot of in Oregon, even if people felt directionally we were making the right choices, a large group of people just felt like that they just
0: weren't no, heard, listening. weren't
1: included, weren't listened to, and it's had uh, it's had long term it's had long term impacts. And then also, Oregon just kept around the policies longer than other states. And, and from an epidemiological perspective, other people can sort of weigh in. I'll just sort of say, Oregon's like health outcomes have been, have been better than other states. Um, but she hasn't gotten much obvious credit for that. Hmm. Um, we don't know the counterfactual, so. If Deaths were higher and hospitalizations were higher. You know, maybe things would be different, but, but I, that's that's sort of my take. Like, like I don't think we needed more politics in the sense that we needed more like partisanship or partisan advantage. But we needed, we needed more people to feel like that they were part of and heard around these difficult decisions, and the fact that they didn't feel that way,
0: I think, made them stop listening uh, to the governor. Interesting. Um, speaking of the governor. Uh... Everyone's talking about the three-way nature of the governor's Mm -hmm. race in um, 22. It's so funny because I, you know, Alex and I talk to people on both sides um, of the aisle and most people don't want to talk about it publicly, but privately, there's a relative, this is totally anecdotal, but there's people who have very strong belief that Betsy Johnson's participation in the race makes it certain that a Democrat's going to win. And there's people who feel certain that Betsy Johnson being in the race means this is the best chance for a Republican ever. Um, Fewer people who say that they're confident Betsy Johnson is going to win, although with her fundraising numbers, that's becoming increasingly plausible to me. I'm curious how you're thinking about what the three-way nature and with Betsy Johnson as such a unique figure in Oregon politics, what does that mean? How are you thinking about that dynamic?
1: I start from the place that independents don't win. I mean, as a general rule, I'm mean, obviously there's exceptions. Bernie Sanders is a senator from Vermont, and uh, Angus uh, King, Angus King, a senator from from and, and governor, previous governor of Maine yep. too, right? Right. Yep. So it's not like independents never never win. Oregon's had one independent governor in its history. Um, I will note that that's the sort of election that I have pointed to the uh, uh, Julius Meyer. Julius I think that yeah. uh, that the, the following cycle. There was also a three-way race where the Republican Party split and when the Republicans ran as an independent, they split the vote and the Democrat won uh, with about 38% of the vote. So, you know, there there's, can work both ways here. I mean, I don't, I have, I have notions about the impact of Betsy Johnson, but I'm gonna just say, have a lot of humility. I, like, Oregon doesn't have experience with this sort of race. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know with the things that i've been paying attention to is just like what does betsy johnson seem to think her path is mm-hmm. um you know she's surrounded by, she's a smart person she's yeah. a good politician surrounded by smart people who are good at politics and it seems to be she seems to be she thinks the path is to win more conservative uh voters non-affiliated voters who are frustrated with the way things are going than to try to carry over democrats with her i just think rhetorically the positions that she's taken so so far she's taken positions um, have been more aligned with sort of the center right um, than than trying to trying to win over Democrats, um, you know. So that's 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 where I'd look to see what her seems to be positioning herself herself I, right now. What I think is happening to the extent that anybody knows who's Betsy Johnson is outside of people who listen to this podcast is that uh, you know. As an example, I, I haven't looked today, but recently going into her website, and if you wanted to learn about Betsy Johnson's positions on an issue, good luck, because there was <laughs> right. there was no link that said what her positions were, her priorities were, her policies were, you know. And that's probably smart politics at this point that she is sort of an empty vessel for people to fill in their their hopes and dreams, and their frustrations with with the current current system. Um, I, I, I mean I I probably share. The same skepticism that a lot of people do like will democrats vote for someone who left their party See, who, who is who's supportive of timber unity is funded by rich corporations like I, I don't know it doesn't seem like doesn't seem like it to me and so so I, I do have a question on that yeah, so yeah.
0: the the theory of the case for um an independent candidate and betsy johnson in particular is that Democrats and particularly Democrats in Portland are so disaffected yeah. by democratic leadership on homelessness, drug addiction, crime that they'll, you know, entertain another option. But at the same time my understanding is that voter voter behavior is is becoming increasingly predictable. Like an individual voter is less likely to cross over to vote for the other side yep. because so is the risk like, I guess, is there any data or reason to believe that like crossover voters will be a thing or is the real risk that Democrats stay home and don't vote, which I think is, is was 2010 was a big problem in 2010 for Democrats was Democrats just weren't coming out to vote.
1: Well, from a, from a Democrat perspective, um, well, turnout's been pretty stable, really. If you, I mean, there's mm-hmm. some little ups and downs, but it's been pretty stable. Overall, turnout in midterm primary elections has been around 70%, I think, for Democrats right around 80%. And, similar for republicans The kind of wild card is there's so many more non-affiliated voters now and you know where do they lean and and, yeah. and what um i i don't know i i don't know i, I that the one observation i have that is, i think is that from a place i sit where i get to talk to a lot of smart insiders and sort of a little politically engaged people and talk to a lot of people who, are who just aren't involved at all. <laughs> is that I think the people who know Betsy Johnson it, it really like her, like yeah. in, in, impressed by her in, in, in a myriad of different ways. And and then translate that in how she's gonna do with the public. And and it may translate, it's just I don't know. I mean, people do not know who she is. Yeah. And and she's gonna have a lot of money to spend on herself, but a lot of the things people are also gonna be hearing about her for the first time are things that Democrats are saying about her. Right. Which things that Republicans said, that are saying about her. Yeah. And and I, we'll see, I, I just, 2022 is exciting for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. We could game it out. I'm just gonna say, I I don't know. I don't know. It's not obvious to me how this plays out. And those who say that they gotta figure it out, um, Are wrong. <laughs> are probably wrong.
2: <laughs> Alex. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I'm glad that she uses the the glasses as the yeah. symbol because, uh, well, you're a Minnesota guy, of course, uh, a state who elected, uh, sure. quite the outsider, if any, yeah. uh, with Jesse Ventura, which I have no idea where. I know he was part of the Reform Party with Pat Buchanan. Mm. Uh, that just literally makes no sense politically <laughs> to me at all. How that even happened, but uh, American politics can be crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, curious to see how that kind of plays out. Uh, the final question I did want to ask is, and I can't I can't reference the exact poll, so maybe you can help clarify for that too, but Ben had sent it to me, and one of my other friends had as well, that basically there was a poll showing that uh, in the governor's race, at least it looks like Republicans have a pretty good chance this year, uh, basically to be able to, be, to beat the Democrat. Uh, curious if you were, to, of course, give advice to GOP mm-hmm. candidates as a nonpartisan pollster, Uh What does that path look like for a Republican? Like, is it talking about those issues like homelessness and crime and things like that? Because personally, that's been something I said that Republicans have been talked should have been talking about for quite some time. I mean, you have like I mean, the homeless issue has just gotten significantly worse in Oregon, at least in my opinion, both from a numbers perspective, but also just you see it a lot more. And obviously, crime rates are out of control. I mean, in Portland, when it comes to homicides and violence uh, and gunshots. It, are those kind of the issues you would say? Yep, like that's that's what voters want to hear. That's what the GOP should run on. Or is that does that also not kind of hit, hit the full picture?
1: Yeah, I absolutely think that those are the issues that they should run on, and then they should downplay some of their more, um, I'll say, a Trumpist sort of attitude and sort of presentation, and and you know, win the primary if you got to win the primary, but you know, stop talking about voter fraud and and so issues that surround that. Hmm. Um, in, in 2010, I don't know the numbers in front of me, but in 2010, the right direction number in the city of Portland was about 55, 57%, something like that. You know, right now it's about 9%. Whoa.
2: Now, a, a, wow. Republi-
1: a Republican is not going to win the city of Portland, right? But there are a lot of voters in Washington County, in Clackamas County, in Washington County, it's really been turning blue, but I don't think that that's locked in right now. And so I would be really thinking like, how do I lock into sort of the concerns about what a Washington County or Clackamas County voter is going to care about you know do what I need to do to hold on to my my folks in other parts of the state but where can I win over win majorities in Clackamas County and at least have kind of you know fight fight strong uh in in or at least win a plurality of a three-way race in Clackamas County and fight strong in Washington County and and the issues that are going to resonate there are the ones you just talked about is you just deep frustration about our inability to deal with homelessness deep concerns about the you know rising lights of crime and you got to present a vision of a functioning government um mm-hmm. you know that, that deep sense of political leadership is is real and so like those would be the issues that 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 I would well, but I would but I would you know to give advice to Republican candidate that that I would that you know focus on those um you know that's where the voters are right now and I think that they have um if not winning policies at least they have the ability to say that the current democratic leadership has failed on them and that's going to resonate
0: uh i'm calling an audible because we're mm-hmm. not letting republicans get free advice without sure. democrats getting free advice too uh so if you're if you're a democrat running in this context where you can't you can't really blame the republicans for the mm-hmm. problems at least not in oregon um is the is the case that you make that you have ideas and vision to solve these problems or do you say the alternative is just you know, so crazy that we can't afford. What would you recommend to Democrats running in this context?
1: Yeah, part of it is disqualifying the other side, right? Just to say that for this, that, or the other reason, you just, they, they are, and, and frankly, there's some Republican candidates, if they won the primary, that's going to be easier than others. Right? Yeah. A lot of it's going to be try to reframe what the issue is in this election. I think that's going to be very difficult. But if you can make this election more about, say, education, healthcare, environmental issues, like, you know, uh um, I think Democrats do pretty well on housing affordability, which is separate, is an issue from, say, homelessness. Right. Uh, you know, maybe some pocketbook issues to help families deal with uh, rising costs. Um, you know, those would be, if the if the debate, if the campaign is about the sorts of things that I just talked about, homelessness, crime, political leadership, Democrats in a lot of trouble. And so I would, I you know, the more that they can pivot towards making this election about, you know, on territory that they feel more comfortable on, that's going to be, be better. One thing I'll just, I'll note that um, education is just falling off the list of voter concerns. Mm. We, it's one of those issues where we ask about it directly, you know, you're concerned about, it, not concerned about it, you will know, we'll get, still get answers. But when you ask people, tell me the things that you care about, education used to always be one or two, always one or two, whether they're talking the state, the local level, and it's just not now. Um, Interesting. Probably a number of reasons for that, but that's like a, a warning sign, I think, for Democrats of just where where voters are at. That they're, you know, one of the issues that they tend to dominate on or have dominated
0: on is just isn't the most. It's just not salient for voters right now. Um, we we have a hard stop at 11:30, and Alex is going to kill me, but we've got you here, so I want to I want to squeeze a little more out. Um, the political leadership issue is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. When voters are identifying political leadership as one of the top issues in the state, what do they mean? what 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 are they identifying as a problem and what does a uh, solution to political leadership look like in voters minds
1: yeah it's it's if you are for most people it means the governor for most people it means the individual governor executive leader who they can identify maybe who they would recognize in the street or recognize on the news um if for a primary voter you know there's going to be democrat primary voters who are really upset about republican walkouts but for sort of a general electorate kind of typical person, they're not paying much attention to the legislative level. And so what they're really talking about are the actions that they've seen by the governor, the relationship, you know, they feel like that they have with the governor and and those are gonna, a lot of it's gonna be sort of reactions or responses to COVID policy where the governor really has just played a critical leadership role, good, bad, or indifferent. That's, she's identified with that. I mean, that's, politically it's about the governor it's
0: about the governor so there's no real solution to uh like nothing that a candidate could offer to that There like voters will know it when they see it basically
1: i think that there could be some exceptions like i do think that joe biden when he ran two years ago um but he was offering unity and sort of back to normal like Mm -hmm. it but he got to run he got he got to be the the other guy um i'm thinking from a Democrat perspective um you know, I wonder. I kind of wonder if Republicans, some Republicans could probably do that better than others with this crop,
0: I, sure. I think. Totally. Um, all right, well, John, thank you for answering our questions. This has been really fun, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, hopefully we can have you on again soon. Um, but before we let you go, if folks are interested in learning more about DHM or getting in touch with you, if they've got specific questions, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I can certainly check out the DHM website, just, you know, dhmresearch.com. And uh, I like to tweet. Um, You can follow me at at Horvick. Uh, If you like charts and
0: graphs, that's a good place to be. We will link to the website and uh, the Twitter profile in the the description of this episode. Uh, Definitely one of the top Oregon political tweeters, uh, John Horvick. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for coming on the pod. And we hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, guys.